Welcome to Knowledge on the Go, the podcast brought to you by the PI Programs team here at Vizient. I'm Margaret Rudisel, Performance Improvement Program Director here at Vizient and your host for today's podcast. We're going to discuss screening for social determinants of health. And why is this important? We know that social determinants of health, such as housing instability, food insecurity, transportation barriers, and limited access to education, significantly influence individuals' health outcomes. By screening for these factors, healthcare providers can gain a more comprehensive understanding of patients' lives beyond their medical conditions. This holistic approach allows for tailored interventions that address the root causes of health disparities. Today, we have Heather Blonsky to talk about this topic and how we have used our Vizient Vulnerability Index tool, lovingly called the VVI tool, to address some of the non-clinical issues of each organization's top 2% inpatient utilizers in our current collaborative, creating capacity transitioning of high-risk patients. Heather, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hey, Margaret. I'm Heather Blonsky. I'm a lead data scientist with our Center for Advanced Analytics and Informatics. And our team has been working on the Vizient Vulnerability Index for about three years now. In our current collaborative, Creating Capacity Transitioning of High-Risk Patients, one of the leading practices that we've discussed is how we address social determinants of health earlier in the patient's stay, even earlier than the admission. We discussed with participants the VVI tool. Can you share with our audience why and how the tool was created? This really came out of what we've always known about health inequity. Poverty is bad. Food insecurity can harm people. But to quantify that is actually very complicated and nuanced. It was about five years ago, the CDC released the U.S. Small Area Life Expectancy Project data, which was really our first look at very hyper-local differences in life expectancy. It was at the census tract level. This was the first time that we've been able to see those differences at that very hyper-local level. It was our first opportunity to say, how do we then match what we know about those neighborhoods and how it comes out in people's health? And when I say people's health and I say life expectancy is those were interchangeable. When we look at what kills people young, it is by and large chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension, heart disease. When we're talking about differences in life expectancy, we're really talking about differences in chronic disease prevalence and complications of chronic diseases. All of those things work together in nuanced ways. In the end, it's not just poverty. It's not just a vague idea of vulnerability, but very specific social needs that we have data on. Food deserts, expensive housing that has outpaced people's incomes, clean environment and specific environmental hazards. Each of those things works a little differently in different places, but they all add up to huge differences in both that life expectancy and that chronic disease prevalence. Vizient has an enormous wealth of data at our disposal. We have more than a thousand hospitals now in our clinical database. We can say with a lot of mathematical certainty that not only can we tune this index to that life expectancy difference, but those same differences come out in the rate of diabetes that our members see in those neighborhoods. The rate of hypertension, the rate of behavioral health diagnoses, psychoses and depression and drug use and alcohol use. All of those things add up to some of the things that lead to a person being a high utilizer. It's not just in that one encounter where they may be an extended length of stay, but what happened for their whole lifetime? The intervention isn't going to be once they're in the hospital. The intervention had to be 50 years ago, 20 years ago, or their access to primary care or their access to healthy food. While this certainly does predict who might be in that top 2%, the approach has to be broader than just focusing on that one set. It's a big question. 
when do we start? When is this appropriate? And it's overwhelming. You have to just start now, start making a difference for the future. It really resonates with me when you were talking about housing and how it has outpaced most people's ability to procure some housing. Can you discuss homelessness and how it impacts health and go a little deeper with that? When you're talking about homelessness or housing insecurity or being unhoused for whatever reason, not having your own house, that is an extreme social need. That is the farthest right end of that bell curve tail things people could need because you don't get to that point without poverty, without other issues. And then on top of that, you now have no house. You have no way of organizing your life around where you keep your stuff and what you can do and feeding yourself. All of those things become much more difficult. And so things can escalate at that point in a number of ways. It's also highly correlated with alcohol use, drug use, behavioral health diagnoses in general. It's a lot of things, but it's a lot of things that have now fallen apart. And among those top two utilizers, we find at least twice as many homeless people in that high utilizer set than in their general population, up to 10 times as many. It can be an enormous number. But that gets to one of the questions about where we get this data. When you look at a clinical record, when you look at an administrative record of a healthcare interaction and encounter, you count on the coding of that record. And there are codes for homelessness, for housing insecurity, homelessness both housed and unhoused or sheltered and unsheltered. And if those are complete, if, then we can get this data about those specific factors. And that's where you get the 10 times as many, the five times as many homeless patients in your top utilizers. However, we know that's not complete. We know that data is not perfect. This is where the VVI comes in. We can say, who are your patients who are at risk of becoming insecure in their housing? And that correlates very much with the housing and urban development measure of that expensive housing that costs more than half of your income. Knowing that you have a set of patients who are at risk of this can give you a hint about what might be coming when you know that the specific patient level data might not be accurate because we're so dependent on that. But if we could use this VVI tool to help marry all that would be very beneficial. Are there other factors that are common in the top 2% utilizers other than, I know homelessness is huge, but is there anything else that bubbles to the top? A couple things do. Transportation, in the sort of obvious way, transportation obstacles to care are going to affect people's ability to access primary care, any kind of preventative measures and things can then escalate. The other one that comes up is what we call social domain needs. The social domain includes the prevalence of single parenthood, the prevalence of incarceration, which correlates very highly with single parenthood, people who have not lived there for at least a year, transients, as well as disenfranchisement. And so all of those together tell you a little bit about the ability of someone to build community and to support each other. I kind of think of that as stand-in for not just that immediate need of who can you call, who can you rely on, but it stands in for how well you can support each other and how well your community can really come together to build itself up, to really take advantage of its strengths. And that really gets into how people's lives go in a really general sense. One of the things that our members have brought up is the incidence of adverse child events among those patients that have behavioral health needs, especially, and those behavioral health needs being a really high proportion of people in those top utilizer, those top 2% of utilization. That gets back to that social domain again, that idea that how well you can support yourself, those social needs, that family and community support, and what you can lack in that in childhood, what you can lack in that all along the lifespan can have effects much later. These all have a long tail. When you talk about single parenthood, that does tie into adverse childhood events because families are under such stress. It's no wonder that that does bubble to the top. 
I heard you mention something about the Z codes. How do hospitals use that? And what is your advice with that? Those are the ICD-10 codes, and we call them Z codes because they all start with Z. Sounds fancy, it's not fancy, but they're Z55 through Z65. The Z codes really reflect those social needs, like inability to pay for your medication, inability to show up on time for your appointment because of your transportation needs. That can look like noncompliance, can look like somebody who doesn't put in the effort, but in fact, doesn't have the means to put in that effort, doesn't have the means to follow through on the things they would really like to be able to do. Those Z codes can be a really specific way to identify a patient for whom these social needs will affect their health. Now, we know that they are not completely coded. We know that only about 2% of patients in our clinical database have any Z codes on them at all. The only times that you see much higher rates are going to be in a hospital in a prison will have a much higher rate. But a hospital in a prison is addressing only people with social needs. You expect a higher rate there. In general, we know that these are undercoded. There are efforts to increase the coding. There are efforts among many of our members to be very proactive, not only about how they screen patients, but how that screening gets into the coding. CMS has instituted an inpatient requirement to screen every patient for a certain set of social needs. That's not everybody. That's not everything. That focuses on that inpatient space where, in general, your primary care physician is the one who's likely to be aware of these and likely to have the potential to intervene, to refer you to somebody. But this is now a bigger picture than just healthcare. It's not just that you want to code something and say, this person has the insecurity or this person has an education need. But what do we do about it? And what do we do about it now gets into how do we engage the community? How do we engage other resources? What other resources are available? How do we support those resources? And that becomes a very big, very complicated picture, but one that really is necessary to bring in that point of actionability. It's not always in that clinical setting. It really is. And I love that you bring up noncompliance because too many times in healthcare, we default to noncompliance and we don't open our eyes to, well, what are the reasons for that that are prohibiting this patient or person from following through on a lot of their healthcare needs? So I'm glad to hear you mention that. What do you do when you identify these needs? Do you have any advice? What is it that hospitals can do once they do identify these areas? I'm a huge fan of community health workers. That's a common approach that a lot of our members have taken. And it's effective. You're, you're really engaging with people in the community who understand their neighbors, understand their neighborhood. You're not bringing in a specialist who's going to fix things. You're engaging with people who know what they need and how to go about that. That's really my ideal. But there are some very objective, very specific things that we have members doing that are really important. There are mobile clinics, mobile cancer screening. There's health fairs and community outreach programs where you really do need to connect and take the care to the patient to the extent that you can. We've had some really great examples of people who have identified, hospitals and members who have identified specific zip codes or specific neighborhoods where they know they have multiple needs, multiple social needs, maybe poverty and lack of insurance and refugee status and language barriers. What they've done is they've planted a clinic there and taking that care to the patient. It's a Herculean effort, but it works really well just being there and being in that community. That's my other gold standard. To what extent can you take the care to the patient? Where can you meet them literally where they are and address multiple needs that way? 
Right. And that's just such a great way to use our VVI tools. In our current collaborative, we have the top 2% utilizers and we've shared that with all of our participants in the current collaborative. What we're trying to do that I think is kind of unique is we're trying to tie that top 2% with our VVI tool. Can you talk to the audience about how we're attempting to do this and how beneficial it might be? We have the patient zip code on virtually every record in the clinical database. And so for our members who are participating in this collaborative, it's one of the things that we can identify about those top 2% of their utilizers, the people who are in the hospital for extended lengths of stay. And this gets to that question of whether we're addressing things inpatient or outpatient, because what we find when we're looking at the data that we provide for this is there are several different factors that come in to this high utilizers. Behavioral health is a huge factor. End of life care is a huge factor. Patients who live in more vulnerable neighborhoods and patients who have specific social needs like homelessness, like family and social need, those figure not only into the 2% on their own, but they also figure into the rate of behavioral health diagnoses. They also figure into that life expectancy and bringing that end of life care much younger than you might expect otherwise. It's all nuanced. It's all working together in ways that are not easy to address. Do you address the behavioral health or do you address the social need that correlates with the behavioral health? Do you address the housing insecurity or do you address all the things that come with the housing insecurity? None of them works in a vacuum. None of them is entirely independent, but they all pile on top of each other and you end up with somebody who has multiple needs and multiple things going on. There's an effect of payer, which could be just an effect of you live in an area where this person needs post-acute care and Medicaid is difficult to find placement for. That's not going to give you 200 days, but that's going to add a few to the end. That's going to add a few more. Somebody who has an extra comorbidity is going to add a few more. And so it's all of these little differences that pile on. What we're providing to our members is their list of patients and all of the factors that we can get identified. And it's going to take some reading through charts and some digging in to see where there are opportunities. And for those social needs, a lot of those opportunities were before the encounter. There are things you can do now, and there are things that we could have done ages ago. And the things that we could have done ages ago are things we need to do now before those people end up in crisis situations. So I'm real excited about what this is going to tell us during this collaborative, but we're just in the beginning phases of it. And maybe it'll be a future podcast, what we find out with how we use it. Anything else to add, Heather? We've had a great discussion about social determinants. It just impacts every aspect of healthcare. And the sooner we get started with screening and addressing those needs, the better we'll all be in healthcare. Anything to add on your part? I'm a statistician by trade. I'm always going to want more data. I'm always in favor of more data. But this particular set of data really gives us that opportunity to look at where differences started and making that actionable, making that something that we can address, not just a generic idea of vulnerability, but this is about the food desert. This is about the transportation. Really lets us see where something could change and something could change to help people achieve those health outcomes that we all want. I'm hopeful about what we can do with this. It's going to be a big picture and a big project for a long time. I'm excited to be part of this part of it. Well, thanks, Heather. You've given us a lot to think about today, and we really appreciate your insights. And thanks to you for listening. For Vizient's PI Programs team, I'm Margaret Rudisel. Please join us for more Knowledge on the Go podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, and send us your comments at PI Collaboratives at Have a great day.